you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Rob Russler came up to me a few weeks ago and said he had had a dream that I was in. So he was down and going through Cairo, and he saw me coming out of a church down there, and he said, what are you doing down here? And I said, well, I'm going to church down here now. And he said, I looked at him and said, you think your job is tough, you should try being a pastor. That reminds me of the statement I read by Stu Weber. He said, if I had a dollar for every time I thought about quitting the pastorate, I could afford to do so. I don't, with all due respect to Rob, I don't put a whole lot of stock in that dream. Somehow, Caro is not what I envision going to when I do, anyway. But you know, in, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a dream in the first year of Belshazzar, and this was not a dream to set aside. In fact, in verse 28, we're told that it was a revelation. God was speaking to Daniel, was revealing truth to Daniel in the format of a dream. And Daniel reiterates this dream in the first 14 verses, and then we see his reaction in verse 15. He says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was disturbed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Daniel, who stood with confidence before dictators and wild animals, was shaken by this dream. Now, if you're here last week, you remember that the dream that Daniel had was that he was standing on the seashore, and out of the sea came four beasts, one after another. The first was like a lion, the second was like a bear, the third was like a leopard, and the fourth was different from the others. Different in that it was far more dreadful. It had ten horns, and then as Daniel continued to look, he says that a little horn grew up and uprooted three of those horns. This little horn had the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great things. And Daniel kept looking until the Ancient of Days sat on his throne, opened the books to judge, and judged that final beast and the little horn and threw it into the fire. And then he says he saw one like a son of man come up to the Ancient of Days, and he was given a glorious eternal kingdom. You say, well, why is Daniel so distressed and alarmed? I mean, this, this dream has a happy ending in verses 13 and 14. Well, some people suggest that Daniel was disturbed because there were parts of the dream that he couldn't understand. And while we'll see that there were parts of the dream that he couldn't understand, that's not the reason why Daniel was disturbed. Because he's going to understand the dream in the end of chapter 7, and we, when we come to chapter 28, we're going to find that he's even more alarmed. The more he understands, the more alarmed he becomes. And so his reaction is not related to the fact that he doesn't understand. His reaction is related to the fact that he does understand. This is an alarming dream. It's a sobering message. And we want to see what that message is this morning. Look at verse 16. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. Now, who is this that's standing by? Well, if you go back to chapter 10, we have the phrase there that myriads upon myriads were standing before the throne of God. 
And so I take this to be one of the myriads of angels that is standing before the throne of God. Daniel comes up to him and asks him a question, and we'll find out later in the book of Daniel that God uses angels to interpret the visions that Daniel sees. So Daniel comes up to him, and what does he want to know? Well, verse 16 says he wants to know the exact meaning. It's interesting that Daniel, the great interpreter, couldn't interpret parts of his own dream. And I think maybe God arranged it that way so that we could understand. Because if Daniel got the dream and just looked up at heaven and said, gotcha, then we would be left out. But in this case, we have Daniel asking what it means, and we have the interpretation laid out for us right after the dream in chapter 7. What does Daniel want to know? Well, he says he wants to know the exact meaning of all this. Verse 16. That's the general interpretation. I want to know what it all means. And then secondly, he wants to know the specific interpretation because in verse 19 he says, then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. So first of all, he says, I want to know the exact meaning of all this, general. Then I want to know the exact meaning of the specifics. What is the fourth beast? And so on. And so the angel, first of all, responds to this first question by telling him the general interpretation in verses 17 and 18. Notice the end of verse 16. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. The four beasts are four kings. And we trace those to the four world empires that ruled from Daniel's day last week. The lion-like beast was Babylon. The bear-like beast was Medo-Persia. The leopard-like beast was Greece. And the fourth beast was Rome. And if you'll notice verse 17, it says that these beasts will arise from the earth. Now, critics have looked at that and said, well, in verse 3 it says they'll come out of the sea. In verse 17 it says they'll come out of the earth. That's obviously a contradiction. But what they don't see is that verse 3 is the dream, verse 17 is the interpretation. And what did we say last week that the sea represented? It represents the nations, the peoples. And so here's the interpretation. The angel is just reinforcing that by saying that when we see them come up out of the sea, it's really them coming out from among the nations, from among the peoples, from the earth. And so it's revealed to Daniel that these four beasts are four successive world kingdoms that will come out among the nations. And then what happens after that? Verse 18. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Those four kingdoms will be followed by the kingdom we saw in verses 13 and 14. But what's interesting to me is the way he describes it in verse 18. You would expect him to say, and then comes the kingdom of God, or then comes the, the kingdom of the Son of Man. But he doesn't say that. He introduces us to a group of people that Daniel didn't even mention in his dream, and that is the saints of the highest one. Who's that? Well, that's the believers of all ages. And he says they will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. That's the same statement we read about Darius in chapter 5, verse 31. It says he received the kingdom at the age of 62. So in verse 14, it says Christ receives the kingdom, and what does he do with it? He gives it to his own. That's an incredible thought. 
Look at verse 17, or verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Christ gets his kingdom, and what does he do with it? He gives it to us, which tells me that we will reign with him. Incredible thought. And yet that's consistent with the promises we find in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 says, If we endure with him, we shall also, what? Reign with him. In Revelation 2.26, Jesus makes this promise to the one who overcomes. To him, I will give authority over the nations. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, John looks into the future and he saw thrones. What are those thrones for? He goes on to say that those who were believers during the tribulation will come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And I think that helps us understand why back in verse 9, we saw the, the term thrones used in the plural sense as well. What are those thrones for? They are for the saints to sit on. In the other four kingdoms, God's people are subdued. In the final kingdom, God's people will reign. That's the general interpretation. Now we get to the specifics. And Daniel wants to know specifically three things about this dream. First of all, he wants to know about the fourth beast, verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Daniel says, I want to know the details about this fourth beast that crushes people with its teeth and tramples them down. Secondly, he says he wants to know about the ten horns. Verse 20, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head. I want to know about this fourth beast. I also want to know what these ten horns are that are on its head. And then the third specific thing he wants to know is about the other horn. The end of verse 20. He says, And the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I want to know about this little horn that comes up and uproots three other horns and then has a mouth to speak and eyes to see. I want to know about that horn. And then he goes on to describe its activities in verse 21. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And so there are Daniel's questions. I want to know about the fourth kingdom. I want to know about the ten horns. And I want to know about this other horn. And the angel will answer those questions in that sequence. First of all, he answers the question about the fourth beast in verse 23. Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down, and crush it. Now this fourth kingdom will not be so much associated with a king as the others were. 
The first kingdom was Babylon associated with Nebuchadnezzar. Greece was associated with Alexander. He says this fourth one is primarily a kingdom. And we talked about it last week. It is the Roman Empire, which was cruel, which crushed people, which devoured people in the process of coming into existence. Second thing he wants to know is about the ten horns, verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. And we talked about that last week as well, and we said that those ten kings are ten kingdom confederacy of the revived Roman Empire that is still future from today. Now, to confirm that, I just want to show you something. I want you to take your Bibles and look at Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Six centuries after Daniel's dream, John had a vision. And interestingly, John is also in his vision standing on the seashore. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. That's interesting. John's standing on the seashore. He sees a beast come out of the sea. What does it look like? He said, well, it's kind of like a leopard, but it's not a leopard. It's got the feet of a bear, but it's not really like a bear. It's got the mouth of a lion, ferocious, but it's not really a lion. Now, where have we heard that? Daniel chapter 7. The first three kingdoms were the lion, the bear, and the leopard. Which tells me that this fourth kingdom will have some of the characteristics of the previous three kingdoms, but it will be different. And John says it has seven heads and ten horns. Now, what's that mean? Well, we have an explanation in Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 17, we're told about a great harlot who is riding on the beast. Now, this great harlot is the false church. The true church is depicted in Scripture as the virgin bride. The church will be taken out at the beginning of the tribulation, at the rapture. What's left behind is this harlot, this false religious system. And here we see this harlot riding the beast. They're in, to, they're in conjunction together in the time of the tribulation. And in verse 9 of chapter 7, we have an explanation of the beast. It says, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Seven heads are seven mountains. Many associate that with the seven hills of Rome, which may very well be where this kingdom is situated, the Roman Empire revived. But then he goes on in verse 10 and says, they are also seven kings. Now stay with this. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. The seven heads are seven kings. Now what's that mean? I take that to be the seven kings 
who hold God's people Israel in subjection during their history. Now he says, five have fallen. Who's that? Well, you go, if you go back in history, the first kingdom to subdue Israel was Egypt, where they had the Exodus. Second was Assyria that took the ten tribes into captivity. The third was Babylon, where Daniel is now located because Israel's in captivity. The fourth is the Medo-Persian Empire. And the fifth is Greece. So he says, five have fallen. And then he says in verse 10, one is. Now John is writing in 95 AD. When the angel says one is, who is subduing Israel at that point in time? The Roman Empire. Five have fallen, one is, that's Rome. Then notice what he says at the end of verse 10. The other has not yet come. Now who's the other? Well, he tells us in verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Five of the kings have fallen. The sixth is Rome. And the seventh one is yet to come. What's it going to be? It's going to be this ten kingdom confederacy. Still in the future. It was in the future in Daniel's day. It was in the future in John's day. It's still future in our day because it's still to come. You know, the interesting thing when you look at Scripture is that there are two primary things over the last 2,000 years, two primary political changes that had to take place for Christ to come and set up his kingdom. The first is the restoration of the Jews to Palestine. None of the prophecies could make sense unless Israel was back in the land. And in 1948... Israel again became a nation. That's fulfilled. The second is the revival of the Roman Empire under a ten-king alliance. And I think if you look around today, you can see that taking shape. It's called the European Union. They presently have their own flag. They have their own national anthem which is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Uh, the Ode to Joy, they've changed it to the Ode to Freedom. And they have their own holiday, which is May the 9th, on which they celebrate the fact that wars between member countries have become a nightmare of the past. On May 9th, they celebrate their freedom. And if you will analyze those countries in that union, they make up much of the landmass that was previously the Roman Empire. And one of the first countries involved in that, which began in 1952, was Italy, where Rome is located. Now, the only glitch today is that there are 15 countries in the Union. But I don't have a big problem with that because in our day and age, Countries change names quickly. They add to each other. They divide. It's happening all the time. In fact, if you want to buy a world atlas, today's the day because they're always on sale. Because yesterday something changed. And so it's not hard to see in our day when we see the fall of the Soviet Union to realize that these countries can get rearranged into a different format. We 
when Christ comes to set up his kingdom or when the Antichrist really rises to power, it will be a ten-king confederacy over what previously was the Roman Empire. Third thing he wants to know about is the other horn. Verse 24 of Daniel 7 ends by saying, And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. The other horn is going to be different. How's he going to be different? Well, let me point out four distinct things about him. Number one, he's going to be a political genius. Look back at verse 8. It says, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. Now, that language may sound a little violent, but it's not. The idea is that this is a gradual thing. He comes in among the other ten. It's kind of like a, a permanent tooth coming in and pushing out one of your baby teeth or three of your baby teeth. That's the idea. He comes in gradually into place and usurps the power of these other three. Now, we don't know how that's going to exactly happen. Maybe he will arrange three of these countries in some kind of coalition and then he'll take over. Because that is his initial style. He will be the consummate politician. In fact, if you notice back in verse 8, it, he's called the little horn. When we get to verse 20 at the end, if you noticed, it says of him, he was larger in appearance than his associate. So he starts out as a little horn, but he doesn't stay that way. He becomes more prominent than all the others. He's bigger than all the others. Now, that's not talking about his physical size. It's talking about his status, his rank. He starts out little, and he's such a political genius that pretty soon he takes over these three countries, and before we know it, he is the prominent one. In fact, in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 13, it makes this statement about these ten kings. It says, these have one purpose, and that is to give their power and authority to the beast. At first, he takes over the three kings, and pretty soon he is over the top of all of them. You say, well, what will make him such a great politician? Well, I think the answer is in the verse that tells us he has eyes like a man, and he has a mouth to speak great things. He's going to have a mouth. Now, everybody's got a mouth. But he's the only horn with a mouth, which tells me that he's going to have a unique mouth. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 5, it says, There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words. He's going to be able to articulate marvelous things. He's going to be able to stand before the television cameras and move the masses to follow him. He'll be able to persuade people with his oratory skills. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13, it tells us in verse 15 that an image will be made of him, and even that image will speak. He'll have a mouth. He will use his oratory skills to persuade people. Secondly, it says he has, in verse 8, the eyes of a man. He's a horn with the eyes of a man. What does that tell us? That tells us he will see things that the others don't see. He will have insight. He will be a fellow who will come on the scene and be able to see things and solve problems. Now, isn't that what everybody's looking for today in a politician? 
walk what you talk. If you say you're going to do something, tell us how you're going to do it and step up and do it. He's going to come with a plan. In fact, the very first thing he will do is described in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, and that will be that he will make a covenant with Israel. He will do what no politician has been able to do, and that is he will make peace in the Middle East. He'll be a political genius. Second characteristic, he'll be a military genius. Verse 23 says, he will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Revelation 13, 4 tells us that during the tribulation, people will be saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Military genius. Revelation 13, 7 tells us that he will have authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. So he will obtain his kingdom by peace, by, by political maneuvering, by flattery, by speech, but once he gets in position, then he will become a military tyrant. Third characteristic, he will be an economic genius. Revelation chapter 18 tells us how he will devise a worldwide economic system. And Revelation chapter 13 indicates that it will be a cashless system. You will have a credit card in your wrist or your forehead. Uh, I don't know how that's going to work. Maybe a little microchip embedded there. And, you know, when you walk into Schnooks and the door opens automatically, uh, that's not all that will open in that day. It, it, your bank account will open when you walk in. You'll take your groceries up to the counter and you'll run your wrist across the scanner and they'll have all they need. It'll all be done through computers. You won't have to do your income tax in that day. They'll do it for you. Uh, if you're looking for a career, don't go into accounting if you're planning to be around in the tribulation. It, it'll eliminate crime. There won't be any cash, at least that part of crime. Uh, it'll be a cashless society. And it'll also be set up so that this Antichrist maintains loyalty because in order to get your credit card, you have to bow down and worship him. Which brings us to the fourth characteristic. He'll be a religious genius. He'll be the Antichrist, not just that he is against Christ, but he will be the pseudo-Christ, the phony Christ. He will be Satan's attempt to put forth a counterfeit Christ. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3, it tells us that he will experience a fatal wound and recover. What's that? Counterfeit resurrection. He will die and rise again. And what happens next? Revelation 13, 8 says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, except those whose names are written in the book of life fascinating to me that we talk about the resurrection of Christ and people mock that idea. In a future day, there will be one who will claim a resurrection and all will bow down and worship this man, the Antichrist. He will be the ultimate cult leader. In fact, in Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 25. It says, and he will speak out against the most high. Once he has taken over the earth, then he will attempt to take over heaven. And he will speak out against God. In Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36, we read this about him. It says, he will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God. And he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, it tells us that at the midpoint of the tribulation period, he will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He's going to go into the temple, sit down, say, I'm God. And everybody's going to bow down and worship him. And he's not simply going to count on their adoration to keep them worshiping because Revelation 13, 15 says, as many as do not worship will be killed. And so he's going to count on force, which is the very next line we read in Daniel chapter 7. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest ones. Those believers in that tribulation period who refuse to bow down will suffer those consequences. And that's the fulfillment of a verse we read in Zechariah 13.8 where it says, at that point in time, two out of every three Jews will be killed. They will suffer the consequences of refusing to bow down. Verse 25 goes on to say, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. He's going to change the times and change the law. I don't know exactly what that means, but maybe it means that he will actually change the calendar. Because our present calendar goes back to A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. He may want to get that totally off the scene, so he's going to institute a brand new calendar based probably upon himself. At least it implies that he's going to change God's times of worship. He's going to stop the Sabbath worship. He's going to stop the religious holidays. And he will also change the law, which doesn't just speak of governmental law. In this context, it's talking about God's law. He's going to change God's moral law. What God says is wrong, he will say is right. He will do everything to overturn everything God has established. So there he is. He's got the whole package political genius, military genius, economic genius, religious genius. You say, well, I bet when he comes on the scene, he's going to reign for a long time. No. Look at the last phrase in verse 25. And they, the saints, will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. What's that? Time, one, times, two, and a half. Three and a half times. What's a time? If you go back to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 16, that same word is used of Nebuchadnezzar for the seven years that he was insane. So he's talking here about three and a half years. And we don't have any question about that because when we come to the book of Revelation, it says this in Revelation 13, 5 about the Antichrist. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, how long is 42 months? It's three and a half years. So the saints will be given into his hand for three and a half years. And we, when we come to Daniel chapter 9, we're going to read about a future time of seven years that's going to come over Israel, that tribulation period. This is talking about the last three and a half years that Jesus called in Matthew 24 the Great Tribulation. So in the first half of the tribulation, this guy's going to be a peacemaker. He's going to break his covenant with Israel at the halfway point. And for those last three and a half years, he will persecute the people of Israel who at that point in time will accept Jesus as their Messiah. What happens after three and a half years? Verse 26. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. 
At that point in time, God's going to set up his court and judge the nations. And the little bighorn is going to be dealt with. And I like the words used here. It says he will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. That's pretty complete. But if you'll notice, it's not just talking about him personally. It says his dominion will be dealt with this way, which tells us that nobody else is going to come along and assume that dominion after him. He's taken off the scene. What comes next? Verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. What comes next? The kingdom of Christ. And again, we see that it is given over to the saints. We will reign with him. Verse 28. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Daniel was so alarmed that he became physically pale. That's the same expression used earlier of Belshazzar when he saw the handwriting on the wall. Daniel was shook. Now this reminds me of what happened to John in Revelation chapter 10. There he was told to eat the scroll. And he says, it was sweet to my taste, but bitter to my stomach. And that's the way it is with prophetic messages. They're sweet because they introduce Jesus as the King of Kings. Tell us about him getting the glory he deserves. Tell us about how we're going to reign with him. And that's sweet stuff. But it's also bitter. Because there's bloodshed, there's suffering, there's wrath, there's fire. It's sweet because we're assured of Christ's ultimate victory. But it's bitter because we know that there are going to be multitudes upon multitudes without Jesus Christ who will be lost in eternity forever. And so when we read Daniel's reaction, we have to understand that he is taking the bitter with the sweet. Prophecy is sweet. Because with all I've said about the Antichrist today, if you're a believer here today, you don't have to look forward to the Antichrist. You can look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And that's sweet. But at the same time, it's bitter. Because this kind of prophecy tells me what the future holds for this world. And that bitterness, that, that disturbing part of it, ought to motivate us to go from here and take our neighbors by the hand and lovingly try to lead them into the kingdom of God. It's sweet, Jesus is coming. But until he comes, we've got work to do. And we ought to be motivated by the devastating effects that are going to happen in the future of this world to reach out to our neighbors around us.